The Pellicle Podcast is sponsored by the wonderful folks at Rode Microphones. We've used Rode mics to make this podcast since our very first episode. I'm a big fan of the NT1, their vintage voice studio condenser, which we use for our voiceovers and narration. Recently, I've also turned to their reporter handheld mic, which is perfect for capturing interviews in the field. This introduction is being recorded using their best-selling NT-USB Mini, plus a little EQ and compression. It's a brilliant little USB mic that's perfect for improving your audio, especially your video calls. You just stick it on your desk, plug in your headphones, and sound more like you're in a studio. The NT-USB Mini is available now, and it's just £99 RRP. Go check it out at Rode.com. Thanks again to Rode, and now, it's on with the show. Hello there, welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm Matthew Curtis. Thanks to everyone for tuning into the last episode we published with Paul Jones, the founder and owner of Cloudwater Brewery here in Manchester. That was actually our most popular episode to date. And I'm not surprised by that because Paul is a very opinionated, outspoken guy with some big ideas. And a lot of people were really interested in what he had to say. And another bit of news is that the Guild of Food Writers here in the UK, they held their annual awards recently, last week in fact. I entered this podcast into the, the podcast and broadcast category and while I didn't get any nominations, I was delighted to receive an email from the Guild to say that this podcast was highly commended and that they really enjoyed it. So they put it on a list of people who didn't quite make it to the nomination stage but the judges really loved the work. And that's immense because... This is a a drinks podcast, but this is going against all food and drink podcasts that entered into that competition. And one of the other highly commended podcasts was Lekker by Lucy Dearlove, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And I think she won it last year. So to see this podcast be listed among so many amazing names and talented people, that was a a thrill. And it really helps me keep going and, and want to do better for you folks, the listeners, and keep making these episodes. So thank you to you for tuning in. So this episode is going to be about writing. This is a very self-indulgent episode I've wanted to do for some time, which is actually sparked by a conversation with my mum, who she doesn't really understand what I do for a living. And I realised from that conversation that actually a lot of people don't really understand how my job works. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I don't either. I'm a full-time writer that writes... 90% of the time about beer with a little bit of cider and wine on the side. But that's that's ridiculous, isn't it? It doesn't sound like a real job. And um, I do love it. And sometimes I have to pinch myself that I get to do it. But I wanted to do an episode about my process and, you know, how I go from A to B and how how it looks from my side of the desk. And I'm going to finish by reading a favourite piece of mine from the last few months, which is the profile I wrote for Pellicle on St. Mars of the Desert Brewery in Sheffield. At the end of this episode, I'll I'll read that piece in full, which I'm really looking forward to. But before that, I'm going to break it down and, and tell you like how I put that together and what my process was like. But the main reason I really wanted to do an episode on writing is I'm thrilled to have written 
not one, but two books, two very different books in the last nine months. An Opinionated Guide to London Pubs, the first one of those, which is published by Hoxton Mini Press, that's out now and you can buy it. And a lot of people have and have been sharing that with me on social media, which is brilliant. But I've also written Modern British Beer, which is an idea I've been sitting on since 2018. And it's the big one. It's a 60,000 word long, 288 page book. It's basically my thesis on modern beer, beer in the UK as it is today. And I'm going to talk about how that was different to anything I've ever done. And I, I was not expecting what that was like. So if you're interested in writing, this episode is for you. If you're interested in more beer chat, then maybe go back and listen to some of the older episodes. But I think if you enjoy this podcast, you'll enjoy this episode as well. But regular listeners will know that before we crack into the subject matter, I like to check in with what's been happening ever since I I shifted the format to this style at the end of last year. And it's been a weird one in beer. Weird is the wrong word. It's been tough. It's been raw. If you've been following beer for the last few weeks, there has been an, an outpouring of allegations of sexism, toxic workplace culture, sexual harassment in beer. And it all started on the Instagram account of, of Brienne Allen in the US, who's at Rap Magnet, who works at Notch Brewing. And it just flowed from there, really. A lot of outpouring of emotion and some very serious allegations that have had real ramifications within the beer industry. And I'm not going to go too deep into it now because this episode isn't about that. And I could do a whole episode about that. And I'm not going to because I don't think it's my place as a man in the industry to talk about an issue that's largely affected women. But I am going to do some interviews with people involved with that in the future that I'm very excited about doing and having those conversations. But it's important to acknowledge that this is happening. And the reason I want to acknowledge it is because I don't know about anyone else if you're in the beer industry, but it's it's brutal. It's caused so much reflection and like this is an industry that I love. I want to work in beer until I'm old. I want to be a beer writer until I'm old, until I can't work anymore. That's my plan. I love what I do. Even on the bad days, even on the stressful, anxious days, I get to the end of it and think, well, I wouldn't do anything else, which is why I'm recording this episode about writing. But to see the beer industry go through such a tumultuous time, it's uncomfortable and I had to take a step back from it, really, because how can you you know, how can you uh, reconcile that I want to write about how delicious beer is and how it brings people joy when there are genuine situations where people are being harmed mentally and physically, and in many cases by employers. Join a union. We'll do an episode on unions, that's for sure, on unionization. But I wanted to just check in and say, if you're outside of the beer industry, then you might be looking at it going, what's happening? I don't really understand. And I think... As a consumer, if you're a drinker of beer, you should absolutely continue to enjoy drinking beer. You have a responsibility to inform yourself as much as people like me have a responsibility with with an audience to, to talk about it. It's up to you who you choose to drink and not choose to drink. A few months ago, even, I would have said, don't drink this, do drink that. I've been totally rethinking my approach to that kind of response Because what I really want is genuine action and accountability from breweries that have been accused. 
And I've got to the point where I don't think I'm achieving anything with that by shouting at them on Twitter. I'm reevaluating how I approach this so I can be a productive member of the beer industry. Sometimes it's just tempting to burn a bridge and say, these guys are awful. I don't want anything to do with them. But actually, some people I do want to have conversations with, even if it might be the last conversation I ever have with them. So it's very challenging and it's got me exhausted. I don't know about you. If you're a drinker, it's up to you the degree to which you inform yourself. I believe you should try and do as much reading as you can. And it's up to you where you spend your money because there's still a lot of good breweries out there that do deserve your custom. It's immensely challenging. I haven't really figured it out yet. It's going to take months, if not years, for us to get through this as a beer industry as we put structures in place and, and work through wrongdoing and try and do better by people. There's no bandage you can put on this for a quick fix. This is long term. I'm in it for the long haul, which is why I'm reevaluating my approach, trying to be less knee jerk. But well done to the people who are out there sharing these stories. In particular, I'm very impressed with the professional approach of Punks with Purpose, the ex Brewdog employees who've called out Brewdog's toxic workplace culture. I think that's going to have genuine results. That's going to have industry wide ramifications. I actually wrote about that for Novara Media, which was very exciting because I'm a big fan of Novara Media. I'm very interested to see what the next few weeks and months bring and very aware that there's a lot of hard work involved from everyone. If you are outside of the beer industry though, and this is all a bit confusing and you're thinking, what can I do? Well, it starts with yourself and your mates. And I'm largely speaking to the men listening to this podcast right now, which is most of you because this is a podcast about beer. When you're at the pub or in particular at a beer festival, because so much bad behaviour seems to go on at beer festivals with this sort of anything goes party mentality, but it could be anywhere. If someone you're with says something sexist or does something that is a microaggression, which could be touching someone on the arm, a server at a bar or something like that, call them out calmly and collectively and explain why it's not okay. It's very difficult to do this. This is why we haven't been doing it. We don't want to have arguments with our mates, right? But it's worth challenging ourselves and doing that. If you are in the beer industry, like I'm with you, like this is a really challenging time and we're going to have lots of conversations about this and work through it. It's rough, but at the end of the day, beer is still something I love and enjoy. It's just difficult reconciling those two things, you know. But I do want to talk about the good stuff because I've been really enjoying getting out and about recently like really enjoying pints in pubs again. I talk a lot about that on this podcast, but it, it's been fantastic to be back in the pub again. I'm going to give some shout outs to some pubs I've been really enjoying, but I can't get enough of cask ale. Like I've just been drinking so much cask recently and it's been just a delight, honestly. Just the feeling of being back in the pub has been great. And I've been going to the pub on my own which is something I know a lot of people who like to go to the pub on their own and say, oh, but I'm worried about holding up a table that, where six people could sit. And, and do you know what? Largely, pubs are dead at the moment. Pubs are struggling for trade. With the news the way it is, that with rising cases, it means that footfall in pubs is not great. I've been going and enjoying some solo pints in some of my favourite establishments. And if it does get busy, they come up to me and say, do you mind sharing your table with this person or, 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 with, or with this couple? And I'm like, that's absolutely fine. It's just been really nice to be out and about. So around the corner from me 
is a great little place called Station Hop. It's kind of a modern beer bar, but it does have some lovely cask. And Amanda there and her team do a great job, lovely warm welcome, and they serve a lot of really local stuff. They get a lot of Rivington in. So Rivington are just north of Bolton, which is to the north of Greater Manchester. And they are, for me, one of the most underrated breweries. Well, they're not underrated. People who drink their beer know how good they are, but they're not widely known. But their beer is brilliant, and I always enjoy a pint of Rivy when I'm in Station Hop. And similarly to Station Hop, there's reasons to be cheerful down in Burnage, where Elle and her team serve some incredible beer. And I had a pint of Torside. That's another brewery that's like a bit under the radar, except if you're here in the Northwest, I guess. I had their brown ale on cask, and it was sumptuous. I absolutely loved it. So they're just two local neighbourhood bars, Station Hop and Reasons to be Cheerful, that I, living in South Manchester, I love calling in on. I've also been visiting the Magnet in Stockport. If you do visit Manchester, you can get to Stockport in 10 minutes from Piccadilly Station, or you can get the 192 bus from outside. So it doesn't take long to get down to the Magnet, which is one of the best pubs in the country, surely. It's a big, old pub. Loads of real ale on tap, loads of room in there as well. It's got a big beer garden as well if you want to sit outside. But they just do amazing cask. Tracks and Omas on there a lot of the time. That's a brilliant beer. But a beer I've really been enjoying in there is something I would have never normally drank or saw down in London. It's Osset Brewery Silver King. It's a golden bitter, golden ale, but it's very Yorkshire. It's mineral and flinty and, and lemon zesty and just under 4%. It's really dry as well. I absolutely love it. If you'd asked me even three or four weeks ago, what beer are you really enjoying at the moment? I probably wouldn't have said Osset Silver King, but it's just tasting fantastic right now. In Manchester itself, another pub I've been really enjoying is the City Arms, which a few years ago, when I was mostly going to craft beer bars, quote unquote, it's not the sort of pub I would have gone to, but I just love proper pubs that's where i want to do most of my beer drinking and the city arms is a proper pub proper city center pub in the truest sense with amazing cask more tracks and omer in there that's what i've been on i did have a cheeky guinness in there on my partner's birthday last week as well but it's just a brilliant pub and it's right in the center of town do check it out if you're ever visiting manchester and my last shout out for all the great pubs i've been visiting recently of which there have been many is the Staleybridge Buffet Bar in Staleybridge, right on the platform at Staleybridge Station. Again, you can get there in 15 minutes from Manchester Piccadilly. So even if you're visiting Manchester, it's really easy to get there. But it's just a brilliant pub. Amazing cask. Saw my good pal, Mark Johnson, there. He writes a great blog called Beer Compurgation. That's his local. And it was not. I just bumped into him there. And it, we hadn't seen each other in maybe nearly two years. And we had wonderful time drank loads of pints of Abbeydale moonshine and it's the kind of conversations that come from that and seeing a friend like that I woke up the next day with this lovely sense of well-being that's what going to pubs is giving me and it helps remind me that this is why I do what I do because I love this stuff and I am in a position a very privileged position where I get to share this for my job a job I made up for myself that's immensely wonderful. As much as things can be challenging and it's important to sit with those challenges and genuinely work through them, it's also important to remind ourselves that there's great beer and great pubs and bars out there 
and great breweries and great cideries and great wineries working really hard to make stuff that's delicious to bring you joy when you drink it or to facilitate this social interactions, you know, and ease into the background. I think maybe that's one of the reasons I've been drinking so much cask. When you're drinking something 4% and not too complex, you can spend one or two sips going, that's delicious. And the rest of the pint is there just to help facilitate the conversation, just bridge the gap between those silences, taking away the awkwardness of it all, making it feel very normal and very whole. The news with coronavirus is always scary and we we live in a, a very different time to how we did a couple of years ago. But do get out to your pub if you feel safe doing so. It will do wonders for your sense of well-being. Anyway, I could talk about pubs and pints for the whole hour, but let's talk about beer writing. I'm really excited to try and explain to you what it was like to write two books in nine months and how I work, really. So I consider myself to be what you would call a feature writer. That's my bread and butter. I write features, 1,000 to 2,000 word essays about a subject in beer that I will pitch to an editor who will say, yes, I'm interested in that. I would like it to include these topics. And then I will research that, write it, and then invoice for a little bit of money. And then I will do the next one and the next one, and the next one. And it can be, you can approach it in in a way that makes it feel a bit like churn. I've tried to change my approach this year by celebrating every piece. I've got a spreadsheet. Whenever I finish a piece, I put the title and the date it was submitted on it. Just to remember that this is a piece of work I did and worked hard on. It's very easy to get caught up in the churn of all the work you've been doing if you're just constantly looking for the next piece of work because there's no salary at the end of the month. I earn as much as I'm physically capable of producing work-wise. But I've been doing this for five and a half years now, so I'm in a rhythm and I have some regular places that I write for, Ferment being one, Beer, the in-house camera magazine being another, and my column at Hotburns and Black, who sponsor Pellicle, but I write beer reviews for their website. I've been doing that for six years. So I have a lot of regular work, and then I have to sort of pitch around a bit and pick up a bit extra just to make sure I can earn enough money to survive and and have a comfortable life. A lot of people think because I get to do this for a living that I earn quite a lot of money, which is, is not true. I consider myself to be very successful in my field, even though it's still, it's still quite early days for me, but success, it's not financial success. You know, I'm comfortable, but it's not a big money job. But as I said earlier, I can't see myself ever doing anything else. I don't want to do anything else. You know, this is my vocation, hopefully, and hopefully I can make it last. So yeah, so I I spend most of my time writing features. And when I was approached to write an opinionated guide to London pubs, so Hoxton Mini Press reached out to me and asked me to pitch for the book. And I wasn't the only writer they reached out, but I saw that tender, as it were, and I jumped on it. I really wanted it. I thought, this is a subject I'm very passionate about. You've just heard me talk about how much I love pubs. So I approached the pitch I sent with that regard very enthusiastically, and I'm very happy that I got it. And writing that book 
it was weird because it happened right in the middle of the pandemic. So researching it was challenging because pubs were closed and the book was delayed by a few months because of that. But writing that book was a bit like feature writing. It was about 1,100 words. What was challenging about it was each entry was only about 100 words long, but still needed to have a narrative, a story, which with just 100 words, that's really difficult because, you know, I'm used to writing these 1,000 to 2,000 word pieces and crafting a story within that much room. That's, you know, it's relatively simple to go from the beginning to the middle and end. Trying to do that in a tiny amount of space is challenging. But I had a great editor, a guy called Harry Aids, who helped, that's what editors do, help bring out the narrative from those pieces. When I first went pro, I hated being edited because it's like, this is my baby. How dare you tell me that this isn't good or this should change? But now I realize after working with some very good editors is that all they do is like bring the best out of the piece. That's their job. And now I am an editor on Pellicle and that's my job with writers. And I have to help them understand that all I'm trying to do is like you've written something brilliant, but I can help you make it even better. I actually ended up writing about 60 entries. I think there's 52 in the book. So a few pubs didn't make the cut. I'm sad that a couple of my favourites didn't make it in, but, you know, it's a book. It needs to be a certain size and a, and a certain amount of pages. And that's the way publishing works. But it felt like writing lots of little articles. And at the beginning, I got to write a 500 word piece, which was very natural. That was the easiest part of writing that book. That intro was sort of crystallized in my mind by the time I'd done all the entries. When it came to Modern British Beer, so Modern British Beer is out on August the 12th. It's a milestone in my career. I waited to do this book specifically. This is 100% my idea. I had it rejected by a couple of other publishers and then I spoke to an agent about it and they weren't interested. But when Camera approached me, at the beginning of 2020, a chap called Alan Murphy, who was the commissioning editor, approached me. He said, have you got any ideas? And I was like, yes, actually, I've been sitting on this book called Modern British Beer that I started working on the idea of in 2018. And I was happy to wait. I got some good advice, actually. I didn't want to wait. I wanted to do this book. But at the end of 2018, I went for a beer with the multi-published beer author, Pete Brown. And I told him about the idea I've had. And he just said, you know, it's a good idea. Someone will come along interested in you pitching them at some point and you will find the home for it eventually. But just wait, be patient. And I'm glad I did. But the way I wrote the pitch, so I envisioned it as this, because it's got 86 beers in it. It's got 86 essays on different beers and how I think they're important or just have an interesting story. So I pitched it as lots of features, thinking this is going to play to my strengths as a writer because I'm not writing a book I'm just writing lots of features and then I'm gluing them together at the end but that's not what happened at all that's not how it happened I actually ended up throwing away the first few thousand words so I started researching it I've been visiting breweries putting the list of beers together because I wanted 80 beers I could have done one of those books with like 300 or 500 beers and each one had like 50 to 100 words. But no, I wanted to write an essay between 500 and 800 words on each beer and whittling it down to, to 80 beers. Actually, there's 86. It went over. There were some beers that just had to go in there. That was immensely challenging, especially as it's by region. So each area of the country could only have so many beers, which means some important breweries are missed out. But 
I thought I could just write these essays one at a time and I could do two or three in a day, get into that flow state where you just like the words are just coming out of you. I've done so much research on the book. I had all this information and I sat down to start it and realized I need to ground the book. I can't just like launch into these beer reviews without explaining what modern British beer is. So I started writing it at the end of February, the proper final draft, as it were, after throwing away everything I'd done in the months leading up to that. So it was commissioned in like July 2020. I think it was given the green light. So I started making notes and jotting stuff down in August. But I realised as I did little bits of it here and there that I was going to have to put everything else to one side and focus on it as a single project. And then I decided I'd be able to write it in five weeks, which was madness. I thought, you know, I set myself a target of like 10,000 words a week. That's easy, I thought. I can sometimes write two or three features in a week. I was met with a nasty shock and it ended up putting me into the most stressful state of my life for two months. So it took nearly 10 weeks to write. I realised this was a a narrative over 50,000 words. It ended up being 60,000 because I had so much to fit in. And the fact that instead of cutting stuff out, they let me put more pages in means that the editors thought, well, yeah, this actually, this is worth leaving in. That's exciting. But I had to essentially define modern British beer. I'm going to do a whole episode on the book. This is about the process rather than the book itself, the process of writing. Imagine this. I wanted to speak to every brewer, and I think I spoke to about 90% of the brewers involved in the beers in the book. And some of them had lengthy phone conversations. Some of them it was email. But I had just pages and pages of interviews and research and notes And then I started building this definition. So I started looking at all these different things. I needed a little bit of history. It's not a history book, but I needed to ground it with what came before. I was like, I'm going to write an intro and it's going to be 2,000 words just to establish the book. And the intro is is about 8,000 words long. So that's already longer than a feature because I needed to tell a story. And then I realized when I started writing the beer reviews that I wasn't writing individual features. This was one story. This was a narrative that had to flow from A to B to C to D. This is a book. It took me about two weeks to write the intro. And then I was like, right, I'm into the meat of the book now. I'm writing these stories about these beers. This is what I do day in, day out. But it wasn't that simple. Each chapter is split by region. So there's one on Scotland and there's one on like Yorkshire in the northeast and Manchester in the northwest and so on and so forth. And they all had to glue together. And then each chapter... Each region had to go from the next to the next geographically and make sense. And it was all I was doing. Some days I would wake up and I'm like, right, I'm going to write two and a half thousand words today. And I'd muster 200. And this was after sitting at a computer for 10 hours. I've written 200 words today. Are they good? Do they make sense? Because I spent so much time thinking, like, how do I take this from this position to this position? Towards the end of the book, when I was like two thirds of the way through and that word count was like 40,000, I started having those days where like, wow, I've done 4,000 words today. That's amazing. But it was very weird. I went into this deep state of 
perma stress for two months. It was unhealthy. I wasn't sleeping. I was probably drinking more than normal. Probably sounds like I drink a lot. I don't really, I'm not a binge drinker, but at this state to be writing all day, just to be able to turn the computer off and then move to a different room in my house, bearing in mind this all happened in my house, move from my little office to our living room and just to open a beer at one in the morning after I'd finally turned my computer off. And that was a release. I didn't even care what I was drinking. But then towards the end, I finally got in a flow state. I've been trying to get into flow. I'm going to talk a bit more about flow when I talk about St. Mars and how I wrote that article. But I couldn't get into this. I was so caged and stressed by the sheer scale of it. And I realized this is a different discipline. This is not the same skill set as I've used to write my articles. And I hadn't prepared myself for that. Largely, it was not an enjoyable process writing the book, especially when, you know, I was working towards a deadline. So I knew I had to get it finished. And I put myself under a lot of pressure. I always have done with the way I work. But it was very weird. You know, I was stressed and unhappy and it wasn't very nice. There were some good friends I did see during this process, but all I wanted to do was talk about the book and how stressful it was. I probably wasn't great company, but I do appreciate the friends who gave me company during that time. But when I finished it, the last beer in the book, I'm not going to tell you what that is. I was going to write a conclusion, but the last beer became the conclusion. And that just flowed like I'd been planning that all along. And I had, because it's the end, you, you know. I knew where I was going to start and I knew where I was going to finish. The finish of the book came really naturally. And the conclusion, it all made sense to me. And it felt like a book. But when I finished that last sentence... I burst into tears. I hadn't finished the work. I still had to proof the whole thing and edit it down, which I then did in two days, two 12-hour shifts, because the deadline was approaching, because I wanted done with it. I had one day off before I started proofing. I had a day, I was like, right, I'm not going to write anything today. And then I had two days where I just read the whole book. And that was quite something because it felt like I was reading a book. It didn't feel like I was reading lots of little articles that I'd glued together. It felt like a complete whole. In a way that was surprising to me, because in the state of writing it, it was just like trying to get the words on the page. But at the end, it was like, wow. And then I finished proofing it, and then I sent the manuscript to my editors, and then I burst into tears again. I think in almost every stage... (laughs) of this book, I've got the final proofs on my computer at the moment. And when I received those and I saw the book laid out with the photos I'd done for it again, welled up with emotion because I've put everything into it. It's a very raw piece of writing. It's very much, if you enjoy reading my writing, it is essentially the rawest piece I've done. If you read my blogs for Total Ales back in the day, it's kind of that vibe mixed in with lots of great quotes from some of the brewers as well. It's kind of old school in that respect, but with a lot more experience, with 10 years of beer writing experience. I still feel like a baby in beer writing. I'm still wet behind the ears. What I see this book as serving as is is kind of a marker of, of this moment. It'll be out of date the moment it's printed. Beer's always changing. Beer is quite chaotic in that way. But I think it's an important piece of work. Mostly, I hope people enjoy it. I wrote it so that you enjoy reading the words off the page, even if it's not that interesting to you. It should be an enjoyable read. I hope it is. People at camera said it is. 
it's had good feedback so far. In six weeks' time, people will be able to buy it and read it, and I feel very nervous about that, but I'm immensely proud of it. It's kind of therapeutic for me to say that because it, it was quite lonely. I had my editors, Alan Murphy, who I mentioned earlier, and Katie Button, who uh, is the editor-in-chief at Camera Books, were immensely supportive and chatted with me over the phone, sometimes for an hour or so, about what I was doing. I think one of the most nervous parts of the whole process was sending a test chapter. I sent chapter three because chapter one and two were so deep and quite opinionated. I was like, I'm not going to send that yet. I'm going to send chapter three, which is a chapter of what they're expecting. And they were immensely supportive of that and gave me lots of reinforcement and some really strong guidance. But from then on, I kind of knew I was on the right path. I'm immensely thankful for their support and just letting me run with it, really. This is my idea and they've just given me all this room to like really explore my deepest thoughts on beer in the UK. Anyway, Modern British Beer, it's out on August the 12th and I'm going to do a whole episode explaining it. It's going to drop pretty much when it comes out, how I arrived at the definition of Modern British Beer, something I thought was really important to do because I don't use the words craft beer much in the book. I call it modern beer and I define it right at the start because craft beer in the UK didn't do that. and didn't want to make that same mistake. And there's some beers are not in it, and people go, why isn't this beer in it? And I try and reason why those beers aren't in it. The space made by the breweries I decided not to put in the book, I gave to some really small, unheard-of breweries, like Rivington and Torside, who deserve to be on those pages, because they are very much, for me, from my perspective, part of the story of modern British beer. Anyway... I just wanted to get that off my chest. I think that's why I wanted to record this episode and explain, like, that was a really weird time. That happened this year over two months, over March and April, largely. And it's a very weird thing to talk about, even among friends. Like, I feel every time I say I've I've written a book, I feel boastful and I don't like that. Anyway, I also want to talk about this article I'm going to read for you shortly on St. Mars of the Desert, because that was that was a very different experience. In terms of feature writing, I think it's the best piece of work I've done. That's very subjective. It's my favourite piece of writing I've done. I think it's the most technically competent. I think it's the most enjoyable piece I've written. And I think that just comes from experience, really. I do about 50 pieces of work a year to make my living. And so the more you write, the better you become at realising your mistakes especially when you start working with editors. like Writers have ticks, some habits you get into that you just can't shake or crutches you lean on, whether it's a type of sentence or the way you frame quotes or anything really. A good editor helps iron those out and helps you produce sentences and paragraphs that flow and a narrative that goes from A to B without falling over itself because anything like that turns you, the reader, off If you get to a sentence that doesn't read very well or a paragraph that doesn't explain the context of something very well, then you might stop reading. And so working with great editors is like, they'll say, this paragraph falls over itself. Can you explain this? What do you mean here? Can you cite a source to prove this thing you're saying? And you do all that and suddenly the piece has context and it flows and it becomes more enjoyable to read. And that's why editors are important. I just want to give a huge thank you to Katie Mather, who is now one of our associate editors at Pellicle, 
but she edited this piece for me and did a wonderful job. This was the first Pellicle piece she actually edited. She really brought out the best of the story. So a huge thank you to Katie. St. Miles of the Desert is an interesting piece to use as an example here because that piece actually is about 15 months from the starting point where I decided to write it to it being published, which isn't normal. In my daily feature writing, I would say it's like between sort of two and six weeks from being commissioned to being published. A bit slower if it's in print. But this was for Pellicle. This is my website, so I'm in charge. I can spend as much time as I want. I guess that's one of the reasons I started my own publication. In terms of my writing, I kind of get that freedom, which is an immense privilege. It started in September 2019 when I first visited the brewery, and I'd wanted to visit them so long because I was aware of pretty things. Dan Paquette and Martha Simpson Holly had this really influential brewery in Boston, Massachusetts. And you'll hear this in the article. I won't go too deep into that now. But Dan and Martha had this brewery called Pretty Things, which wound down in 2015. And then they emerged in Sheffield in 2018 and started this brewery, St. Mars of the Desert, bringing this reputation with them, this excitement. What are they doing in Sheffield? And they started making saisons and all sorts of interesting beers with a huge Belgian monastic influence, as well as some great lagers, as well as some great IPAs but beers that were brewed with obvious experience behind them. This was a brewer of 30 years in the case of Dan, and you could tell that experience was there. But there was something different about them, this creative X factor, something you can't put your finger on. That's what made me want to write about them. And that was cemented when I visited their tap room with some friends in September 2019. I went to pop in for a couple of drinks, and I stayed for nearly three hours because I was so happy being there. And the beers were so delicious. And I left feeling pretty inspired and already starting to plant the seeds of that article. So I reached out to Dan and Martha not long after that and said, I would like to visit the brewery and spend a day with you and take some photos for an article that I'm going to write on my new magazine, Pellicle. And I'm always a bit nervous doing this because there are definitely brewers that don't like having journalists standing around taking photos. It's not that normal in the beer industry. They gave me a positive response. Yeah, we'd love to have you for the day, especially because I didn't just want to pop in for an hour. I wanted to spend a day with them from the morning brewing through to having pints at the end of the brew day. I wanted to really get a feel for the brewery. And you can't do that in a couple of hours. I'd experienced the busy tap room. That memory was locked away. And now I wanted to capture the heart of the brewery, how they make their beers. And it was a wonderful day. It was a bit overwhelming, actually. I got to Sheffield bright and early. Martha picked me up from the train station. Dan was brewing when I got there. And I started nervously chatting away and taking photos. But after a few hours, you kind of forget that's going on. And you start to capture the brewery in a more natural state. But we just didn't stop talking the whole day. We stopped for lunch, had a sandwich and tried some fresh pilsner out of the fermenter. And after the brew was finished and the brewery was cleaned down, we went for a quick pint and I tried to record a podcast, but there was a football match happening. The pub was near the Sheffield United football ground and very quickly filled up with football fans and it was way too noisy. So I recorded an interview until it was just too challenging. And then I was a little bit drunk and I was on the train home and that's when the title came to me, 
everything in its right place because I was listening to Kid A by Radiohead because that's how I felt like everything felt where it was supposed to be. And in that haze, I wrote the first paragraph, just three or four sentences. And then those sentences sat on my computer for months before I returned to it and picked it up because I spent a lot of time ruminating on it, contemplating it, digesting it, drinking more of their beers. Also, a pandemic happened, so that slowed everything down. That's for sure. But it didn't feel like I was ready to start writing it. But what I did do was start speaking to people about it, which became interviews. It led me to people like Dominic Driscoll at Thornbridge, who did some gardening with them when he did a collab with them. And Ron Pattinson, the beer historian, who's brewed with them several times as Pretty Things and as Scent Mars of the Desert and loves them to pieces. And I spoke to Jules Gray, who is the owner of Hop Hideout and the person behind Sheffield Beer Week. Hop Hideout is a great bottle shop in Sheffield if you ever need to pick up some bottles and cans. I think you can drink in there as well. Jules is one of the most knowledgeable and interesting people in the Sheffield beer scene. I just kept building up this story of how Sheffield felt about them. And then I went to Boston. I didn't go to Boston. I went to the people in Boston. In fact, what I did is I put out a call on Twitter and said, I would like to speak to some people in Boston about pretty things. And my inbox just lit up with all these stories of people and how they miss Dan and Martha and how they love their beers. And I pulled on a few of those threads and chatted in depth with some of those people. And I started building this sort of bank of research and information. So I'd interviewed Dan and Martha. And after I had all this new information, I went back and I interviewed them again. And I just kept badgering them. Every time I found an interesting nugget about them, I would get in touch and say, can I ask you about this? To the point where I was annoying. They assured me I wasn't, but I definitely, definitely was. So thank you, Dan and Martha. And then finally, once I gathered all of this information and I had some room in my schedule, I didn't have any deadlines for other publications. I'm like, right, I've got two days free. Let's see what happens. And sometimes this doesn't happen. But with this article, it did. For about 48 hours, I went into this deep flow state, almost trance-like, where the words just poured out of me. Just over 4,000 words. So I would have done about 2,000 words each day. But it all came very naturally. It all made sense. Even when it stuttered, I'm like, oh yeah, I just need to move this bit here and this bit there. And then I'm going to go to this part of the story. I knew all the bits I wanted to include. And then there was lots of stuff that didn't go into the article. I could have written 10,000 words on them, but that's not what I was trying to do. I wanted a story that could be read in a relatively short amount of time. I had all this technical brewing stuff about the brew house specifications and how they brew. And I decided I'm going to leave that out. I'm going to focus on the philosophical side of what they do, the creative side, because that's the kind of brewery they are. It's the kind of people they are. And that's the story I want to tell. And I think when that was combined with my own enthusiasm for what they do, That gave the end result. I think you've heard enough of me rabbiting on about beer writing. I don't know if that revealed anything to you about my process. It's a very weird job. I don't get to talk about it a lot because it seems, like I say, boastful. I'm a beer writer, this is what I do. Sat in my little office on my own for a long time. I think it's best if I focus on reading this piece to you. But if you find this episode interesting, do let me know. I'm always available on my email. It's matthew at pellicalmag.com. 
or send me a tweet. I'm really passionate about beer writing and writing in general. It took me a long time to arrive at the word writer. When someone asks what I do, I say I'm a writer. I've tried calling myself a journalist. I'm not a journalist. I don't do the news. I don't do reporting. Occasionally I do if I get hired to do it, but that's not my main vocation. I'm a writer and I'm very passionate about writing. I was lucky enough to start doing something as a blog and turn that into a career, which is a very weird thing to do. It feels very weird and I don't know how I did it, but it just happened for me. I'm aware that that's not the case with a lot of people who might really want to do it. And I guess that's why I did this episode. If you're listening and you're like, I'd like to write about beer or start a podcast, just do it. And I'm happy to help with any advice you need, any questions. There can't be enough people talking about beer, whether it's the challenging topics we talked about at the start of the episode or beautiful pints. It's all part of the same context and why beer is important. And I guess... That's kind of what my book's about. That's why I'm really excited to share it with you, because it's about all of that uncut 60,000 words. I can't quite believe it. I'm going to read the piece on St. Mars now, but what I'll do at the end of that is I'll finish the episode. That'll be it. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're enjoying PellicleMag.com, our website, then please consider supporting us via Patreon. Everyone gets paid for the work they do. We now have a small team where we've hired Lily Waite and Katie Mather to be associate editors and help Johnny and I with the workload. We're paying them a little bit of money too. The more support we get, the more ambitious we can be with our editorial. Our next goal is actually to increase our rates. When we hit a certain target on Patreon, we're going to pay people more money because that's super important to be able to pay a fair industry standard rate. So you can support us with a monthly donation from as little as a pound at patreon.com forward slash pellicalmag. You don't have to. We're going to keep the website and the podcast free forever. But if you are able to help us with our content, please consider giving us a little donation every month. Anyway, thanks for listening this far. Now I'm going to read the story of St. Mars of the Desert in an article called Everything in Its Right Place. Ipsum Virum Hand-painted in white, these words hang on the sky-blue walls that house the production side of the Brewery of St. Mars of the Desert in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. Directly below them, a long, slender, stainless steel vessel, referred to in this brewery as a cool ship, is collecting hot, sticky brown wort from today's brew. After a few weeks of fermentation and conditioning, It'll become a Belgian-style saison called Fieldmouse's Farewell. As the heat of the work collides with the cold air in the brewery, a blanket of steam rises. At the opposite end of the closely packed warehouse, a stationary canning line, a modest pair of conical-bottomed fermentation vessels, and a solitary oak fooder fade into mist. Plump beads of condensation collect on the corrugated ceiling. Wiping the lens of my camera in vain, I attempt to capture the brewery's sole owners, Husband and wife, Dan Paquette and Martha Simpson Holly, scrambling, wisp-like in the fog, connecting hoses and couplers, weighing out hops, digging out spent grain. I always think of it as meaning the truth is of itself, 
Martha says of the Latin phrase Dan painted on the wall when they were fitting out their brewery in late 2018. To me, that means if you look at something the right way, you'll see it in reality. If you look at things the wrong way, which we all do a lot, both in beer and in life, you will see a load of old bollocks. The saying, Dan claims, was spoken to him from the ether of sleep. He recalls to me a dream, wherein, surrounded by woodland, a giant grain of barley became manifest before him and spoke the words now painted on his brewery's walls. Upon waking from the dream, Dan quickly wrote the phrase down and showed it to his friend, Brother Brian Rooney, a Trappist monk of St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts, who was able to translate the words and help interpret their meaning. You can write it off as fluff, but I don't know any Latin, so the fact it meant anything was meaningful to me, Dan says. And I think that being true is really important especially if you're a creative person. The talking grain of barley Dan dreamed of was no stranger to either him or Martha. He had a name, Jack Daw, and represented something incredibly significant to them both. Martha explains to me how, back in 2008, when they launched their previous brewing venture, Pretty Things Beer and Ale Project, in their former home city of Boston, they were starting from scratch. There was no money and no brewery, she says we had to summon this whole suite of beers from nothing. The couple tell me how they willed Jack into existence through their writing, drawings, and even a poem Martha wrote, which is painted onto another of the walls at their brewery. Just as he would later appear in Dan's dream, they would first give life to him, a mystical, living grain of barley, who to them represents the soul of beer. He wants beer to be made, Martha says. Dan's drawing of Jackdaw, which depicts the golden barley corn, as Martha's poem describes him, bathing in a mash tun, adorns the label of a deliciously crisp, bold, yet balanced Saison-style beer of the same name. It would eventually obtain something of a cult status among beer-loving Bostonites, New Englanders, and others lucky enough to find it on tap, or get their hands on a bottle. That first Jackdaw was enlightening, New England-based journalist Matt Osgood tells me in an email. It was as if I'd been eating home-cooked meals and suddenly I was at a Michelin-starred restaurant. I miss that beer dearly. In 2015, after establishing a lofty reputation within North American craft beer, Pretty Things came to its end. Despite being in operation for seven years, Dan and Martha were never able to open a facility of their own. Instead, They made beer by brewing itinerantly at Buzzards Bay Brewing in Westport, to the far south of Massachusetts. Around a year before they closed, Pretty Things made headlines when Dan spoke out publicly against alleged illegal pay-to-play practices, claiming that certain local distributors and retailers were charging breweries for tap listings. Despite some of the negative media attention this received, Dan tells me it wasn't a particularly major factor in their decision to move on, but it did have an impact including for Pretty Things Distributor, which was charged and fined. It made something we were enjoying less, less enjoyable, he says. It's a mess, but ultimately it wasn't our battle. It was just a chance set of comments that were picked up on social media, and we felt we were then duty-bound to see it through. By 2015, the beer industry was changing around them fast. Consumer interest in the 22-ounce bomber-style bottles they put their beer into was dwindling in favour of 16-ounce cans. And at the time, 
Buzzards Bay had no plans to install a canning line. Pallets were shifting too, with interest in historical English and Belgian styles waning as drinkers began to prefer fruited sours and hazy IPAs. A cultural shift that in New England, pretty things, was at the centre of. I was bored. I longed for more creativity and less box ticking, Martha says. It's great when you're building something. It's challenging and fun and exciting. At some point that goes away, and I think that's usually the time to make a big change. You either go for a new big challenge, or move on in other ways. I wanted to be a brewer first and foremost, and never let anyone else brew a drop of pretty things. But there was this great sense we both had that we had done everything we wanted to do with it, Dan adds. Pretty Things has taken us all the way from being literally broke to giving us seven fantastic years to these exciting opportunities afterwards. Things don't need to last forever. As their former brewing operation dropped its final curtain, Dan and Martha called time on their life in the US, but not without leaving a considerable legacy in their wake. I reached out to the New England beer community to gauge the lingering feelings surrounding the loss of Pretty Things even now, all these years on. Within minutes, my inbox was overfilled with messages professing their admiration for Dan, Martha and the beers they made. There were anecdotes of meeting the couple for the first time, reflections on how they changed the game within the New England beer scene, and love letters to Jack Daw himself. Although one note from Connecticut-based beer educator and illustrator M. Sorter struck a particular chord. I miss them madly, it said. Once their operation had wound down, the couple travelled the world for almost two years to figure out what would come next. Before leaving, they had one last party, a funeral of sorts, for Jack Daw, who lay in state in a coffin throughout. After which, they drove all their belongings to charity shops, sold their house and spent two weeks relaxing in Hawaii. On returning to Boston, they drove down to Florida, where they sold their car, before spending 24 days on a ship that eventually dropped them off near Rome. After a time in northern Italy spent working on a farm near Lake Garda, the couple moved on to the Austrian Alps, where they stayed for a winter. They backpacked through Thailand and Cambodia, then travelled back to Europe to devour cheese and cider in Normandy, and to take a beer pilgrimage into Franconia. Finally, they ended up in Berlin, after visiting 34 countries in total. Those two years were a total privilege, Dan says. We'll never be the same again. Despite avoiding what they refer to as craft beer throughout their travels, a future that involved them opening another brewery, it seems, was destined. Most of the while, we were pretty sure we wouldn't be back in beer, Martha tells me, but it began to call us back again. Originally from the northeast of England, her accent still wholly intact despite her years as an expat, Martha emigrated to the US in 2002 to work as a virologist at Harvard University. In 2004, while missing the creature comforts of home, she attended NIRAX, the New England Real Ale Expo. I was excited to go being a Brit, she says. I dragged my US roommates who took one look at the beardy, farty, assembled crowd and abandoned me to go drink cocktails in a bar down the street. Fatefully, Martha stayed. And it was there she first met Dan, a brewer of almost three decades. He still speaks largely with a Bostonian lilt, albeit now with a few British inflections. They married in Martha's home county of Yorkshire in 2006, and there they stayed for two years. 
Eventually, Dan decided he was fed up with country living, and we were broke, Martha adds. And so they returned to Boston, where they would go on to establish pretty things that same year. When their travels concluded in 2017, accepting that what they wanted from life was a small, artisanal brewery that gave them total control over what they made, the search for a new home began. Initially, they worked their way along the cities and college towns along the U.S. East Coast, but Dan and Martha never quite felt settled. Returning to Europe, the couple tell me how they fell in love with a small holding located in the Pays de la Loire region in northwestern France, connected to a village called Saint-Mars of the Desert, or Saint-Mars du Désert. Once again, they turn to their friend brother Brian Rooney for advice. Dan brings the Trappist monk up often, speaking of him with great fondness, recalling stories of how he'd take the 4am starts in his stride while brewing together at Pretty Things. Behind the scenes, Dan was also involved with some of the work preempting the launch of Spencer Trappist Brewery by the monks of St Joseph's Abbey, although he laments that after a shake-up, their friend was taken off the project at the last minute, instead assigned to lead the manufacture of the monastery's famous preserves. It was definitely one of the high points of my career, secretly plotting with monks to get the first Trappist brewery in the US built, Dan says. It was surreal having a Trappist monk on our team. Brother Brian was able to confirm that St. Mars was indeed real, an 8th century hermit, one of the early desert fathers, as Dan describes him, who inspired monasticism. It's these early monastic beginnings that would eventually lead to the industrialization of brewing, and something the couple take a great deal of inspiration from. We eventually gave up on the site, slightly spooked by Brexit, Dan says. But we thought the village name was so incredible and so good for a couple of outsiders who were going to move somewhere strange and build a brewery. Setting their sights on the UK, they fancied perhaps opening a brewery in the countryside. But this wasn't to be. The challenges were too big and beyond our budget, Martha says. Turning their attention towards the cities, they looked at Manchester and Leeds, but ended up preferring Sheffield's more laid-back vibe they eventually committed to a building in Attercliffe, an old industrial area to the city's northeast. According to Dan and Martha, this was just out of sheer exhaustion, really. When we moved to the UK, I have to admit we were feeling all at sea, Martha tells me. We'd built the brewery, but it was still empty. Nobody knew us, nobody had been to visit us. We were feeling a bit lonely, and I in particular was feeling really, really shaky emotionally. We'd spent all our money as well. We were all in. Ducking outside the brewery, its low ceiling shrinking under the denseness of steam, I find myself in a smallish yard. Currently occupied by a couple of park vans, at the weekends it's home to a couple of chunky wooden tables that seat eager drinkers. At just past noon on a clear January day, the small asphalt rectangle is being struck by the kind of clear winter sun that provides sharp contrast to everything it touches. There are no other staff at St. Mars of the Desert. The couple does everything themselves. Behind me, Dan continues to empty spent grain from the mash into smallish blue plastic cylinders. He shovels and drags repeatedly and purposefully, with the look of someone who has done this many times over, and knows they will do so many times again. Despite the physical work going on in the warehouse behind me, everything feels calm and as it should be. To my right, beyond a wrought iron security gate, 
is a huge warehouse that once formed part of an old steelworks, as did most of the buildings here, helping Sheffield earn its nickname, the Steel City. Speaking to my dad, Frank, who lived there for most of the 70s, he recalls Attercliffe as being intensely industrial, very working class, and quite smelly when the furnaces were active. Some of the buildings in Attercliffe are still scarred with black from decades of smelting. On my left is a bright fire engine red set of double doors, old brewery red, Martha calls it, referring to the signature colour of pretty things. This reads, Welcome to Mars Brewery, which lead to the tap room, along with some office and storage space. In front are a few old oil drums, plant pots and an old chest freezer, all planted out with, among other things, foxgloves, geraniums and primroses, by a friend of the brewery, brewer and semi-professional gardener, Dominic Driscoll. Straight away I knew I wanted to make a beer with Dan and Martha. I just fell in love with both of them. Dominic, who works at Thornbridge Brewery in nearby Bakewell, tells me. We decided to do a collaborative planting too. Obviously I was pretty delighted. I wanted to make it as bee-friendly as possible, which they agreed with. Brewed just a few months after they opened, the result of their collaboration was a beer called Pepin, a relatively low-alcohol Belgian-style pale ale with a spoonful of sweetness and a light tang of bitter hops. Perfect for lazy summer drinking. To mark the beer's launch, Martha screen-printed a hundred envelopes by hand, each containing wildflower seeds that were handed out to lucky customers on the day. I've been lucky enough to work with some amazing breweries in my career, but this remains my favourite collaboration by a country mile, Dominic says. To have contributed a little something to the magic and story of Smod makes me very proud. After stepping out for a few minutes, Martha arrives back at the Iron Gate, three bulging paper bags in hand. Dan pauses his work, takes three glasses from behind the bar in the tap room, and heads back into the brewery, where he pulls us each a measure of beer from one of the fermenters. We take a seat in the corner of the tap room, which is painted in the same vivid sky blue as the brewery, although with the sun hitting the walls through its tinted glass windows, it's somehow even more vibrant here. When we were travelling, we would encounter the colour blue a lot, more than any other colour, Martha says setting down the bags that contained fist-sized ham rolls from Rose's Bakery in nearby Atlas. We just loved it. It spoke to us of hot countries, sunshine, richness, and it sets off that red, and beer, and everything really. It just ended up being where we wanted to be. Dan sets down three stemmed goblets, the brewery's logo printed on them in smod blue, as it's known. The typeface is Dan's own artistic handwriting, which also features on all of their cans and merch alongside his drawings. Behind the taproom is Martha's screen printer, where she mixes the paint herself. Inside each glass is about two fingers of sparkling golden lager called Hopfenpils, topped with about three times that of foam. It rasps and snaps with the spice and herbaceousness of German Tetnang hops. Dan attempts to tell me he thinks it's too bitter, but as I shovel mouthfuls of salty, mustard-slathered ham into my mouth with one hand and wash it down with pristine pilsner in the other, it falls on deaf ears. Bar the sounds of our chewing and sipping, and Dan's attempt at self-depreciation, the taproom is silent now. The old wooden furniture is empty. The decorative hops adorning vintage Belgian tin signs have long since faded from verdant green to dull brown. The blackboard normally listing what's pouring is half erased expectant of the new beers it will inform customers of in future. 
They had planned to have a short break before opening again in March 2020, but the bastard virus put a stop to that, for now. I had visited a few months before, though, on a Saturday, and experienced the taproom in full swing. People glugging down saisons, triples, New England IPAs and 19th century imperial miles with abandon, shortening the brewery's name from St. Mars to just Smod with each passing reference. This is a happy place. Sheffield has a rich and well-established beer culture. In 2016, it was described by the author Pete Brown as the world's best beer city. It's well known for its excellent pubs, serving sublime pints of cask ale. Hostelries like the Rutland Arms, the Kellam Island Tavern and the Fat Cat, the latter also home to the vaunted Kellam Island Brewery. It's also home to more traditional breweries like the aforementioned Kellam Island, ultra-modern craft breweries such as Lost Industry, and those that straddle both worlds, such as Abbeydale, which has been brewing here in Sheffield since 1996. I love the scene here, the massive variety of old pubs and the great beer drinkers who seem to frequent them all, Dan tells me before Martha interjects. It was a bit scary though, because we're doing something different, An uptake by the locals of craft beer is not huge and still very niche, internet-based and male. Despite having a vibrant and well-grounded scene, when it comes to beer, Sheffield is not always spoken of in the same manner as nearby Leeds and Manchester, or places further afield such as London and Bristol. I always found the scene here friendly and welcoming, yet a little insular. Jules Gray, proprietor of Bottle Shop Hop Hideout and organiser of Sheffield Beer Week, tells me. It's always been a very keen and price-conscious beer market maybe partly down to its industrial past and big service job sector playing a role in people's overall disposable income. There are few people more in tune with Sheffield's beer culture than Jules, though she's modest about her influence. When she moved back to her home city around 2011, she found the beer scene to be in a familiar and cosy rut. When asked how that shifted over the last decade, she points to the influence of Abbeydale and to Thornbridge, the latter who, despite brewing a few miles away in Derbyshire, have found their spiritual home in Sheffield, thanks to its handful of pubs here. St. Mars have bought a refreshing growth in consumer interest for classic styles such as lager and Belgian-inspired beers, but done very much through their own lens, she says. I think that's translated authentically and chimed with a lot of people here too. Could the arrival of Dan, Martha and the brewery of St. Mars of the Desert be the missing piece? cementing the steel city in people's minds as one of England's best beer destinations? More likely, they've added another layer of excitement and intrigue to an already buoyant scene. Try as they might, they did not arrive anonymously, the lofty reputation of pretty things following them across the Atlantic, with rumours of their new brewery soon appearing online. I remember learning of their arrival for myself a few months before they were due to open. Although eager to get the scoop on their new operation, Locals like Jules correctly advised me to ease off until they'd properly settled into their new home. Initially, we thought Smod were really brave for setting up in an area of Sheffield which otherwise doesn't have much going for it, Abbeydale Brewery's Laura Rangeley tells me. But they've really helped to inject some enthusiasm for and excitement about our city and make it more of a destination for beer lovers across the country. 
those who followed Dan and Martha since their Pretty Things days will find no shortage of nostalgia in the paraphernalia scattered around the taproom. The tap handles and logos affixed to the front of the bar all bear the red, five-pointed tree logo of their old brewery. It's difficult not to notice the similarities and differences between their old and new logos, but Martha assures me that there's nothing sinister behind the austerity of the new design. Once a flowering tree, it is now pruned and bare. In our creative relationship, we always have fights based on me wanting to add and Dan wanting to subtract, Martha says. I had all these ideas about adding leaves to the pretty thing's tree, but in the end, it just came out and was simple and lovely. High on a shelf behind the bar, among the old brewery regalia, sits a photo of Dan and vulnerable New England brewer Todd Mott. Alongside them is celebrated beer writer Michael Jackson. When asked about the photo, Dan tells me it was taken at the 1997 Great American Beer Festival and how he met Michael on a handful of occasions before his passing in 2007. The first time was in 1993, when he was among a handful of folks who shared a Harvard lager bottled in 1957. Another well-respected writer, who's often brimming with praise for Dan and Martha, is beer historian Ron Pattinson. We would fly him over either to brew or for the launch party of the beer, Dan says, before adding that Ron would almost always choose to visit for the party. It's a relationship that has continued at St Mars. Having brewed an Imperial Mild using a recipe from 1832, they named 4X Ron in 2019. We pretty much fucked the brewery with the whole leaf goldings, but it tasted amazing, Ron tells me adding that the 1832 Mild is his favourite of the recreations he's made with the couple. Dan and Martha are two of the best people in the beer world. With today's brew of Field Mouse's Farewell, another legacy from their Pretty Things days, safely tucked away in its fermenter, Dan rings a bell that hangs by the brew house a few feet from the cool ship, a small ritual to mark the end of the working day and the transition to rest. Heading back into the centre of town, we stop for a beer and a chat at the beer engine. The pub is rapidly filling up with thirsty football fans wearing the red and white stripes of Sheffield United FC, eager for pre-game pints of Cask Ale, their thick Yorkshire accents hanging in the air. Taking in the scene, I'm about to remark how Sheffield must feel a world apart from Boston. But before I get the chance, Dan says something that stops me mid-thought. There's a fine line between a shit brewery and our brewery. I think it sums up how we feel about beer and brewing, Martha interjects. There's always going to be a literal line in our brewery where infected beer is on one side and clean beer on the other, and sometimes we won't be aware of where that line is. I firmly believe that magic only happens when things are a bit messy and mad. I'd rather play with fire and fail more often, Dan adds. Am I presently doing it? A little, but I want to do more. As a beer drinker, my ideal beer is probably infected. Now that's Virum. <laughs> 